Do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings, we'll be in chapter 20, specifically verses 13 through to 34. A couple hours ago, actually probably not even a couple hours ago, I was next door talking with Tom Eichem, who's one of the executive pastors here on staff, and if you haven't met Tom, he's just an incredible guy who just loves the Lord. Um, And we were having a conversation, and he was like, so what are you teaching on tonight? And I said, 1 Kings chapter 20. And his eyes got like really big, and he was like, oh man, that's the, the battle between Ben-Hadad and Ahab. And I was like, how do you even know this? <laughs> because that, that, I wouldn't have been able to tell you that before a week ago. Um, and, and then he asked me, you know, what made you want to teach on 1 Kings? And I said, I think what made me want to teach on 1 Kings is that I'm scared of the Old Testament, and I need to be braver. Uh, and, and the reality is that that for a long time leading up to us kind of jumping into this series, uh, I felt the Lord convicting me that as, uh, as a pastor and as a ministry, we have not done a good job of helping you all to understand the Old Testament. The New Testament in so many ways is just easier. Like a letter from Paul is mostly commandments. Do this, don't do this. That's really easy to preach. Uh, the Gospels are maybe a little more difficult, but it's Jesus Right? I mean, like, it's easy to get to Jesus when Jesus is literally the name of the central figure in the passage. But then you come to these passages in the Old Testament, and just being honest with you, even as somebody who's being trained in a seminary setting, I struggle with some of this stuff. Like, I, I read through some of these passages, like the one that we read through today, or we're going to read through here in a second, and I kind of just throw up my hands, and I'm, I say to myself, like, I think this has something to do with Jesus, but... Only Jesus knows how, because I certainly don't understand it. And yet what I hope you've kind of gathered as we've walked through this book for the better part of a year now is that in so many ways, we're we're brought to the feet of Christ, even in these passages that don't seem like they'll lead us there. Uh, This is why Jesus, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, before anybody knows he's risen from the dead, there's this really strange event. It's actually one of my favorite parts in the whole book. Bible. It's one of my favorite portions of scripture. And Jesus uh, has risen, but nobody knows it. And there's these two disciples that are walking on the road to this city called Emmaus. And we're told that Jesus draws near to them. And he said that they look sad. And Jesus says, why are you sad? And they say, are you the only person who doesn't know what happened to Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. But our high priests and our leaders have put him to death. And Jesus' response is, you foolish people, slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets have said. And then what, what Luke tells us is, beginning with Moses, that's the first four books, and the law, and all of the prophets, he explained everything that was written concerning him. Uh, Jesus has this sense that this whole first half of our Bible that so confuses us is not really meant to terminate on itself, but when we read it rightly, we find him in it. Uh, my hope is that that will happen as we spend some time in something of a strange passage this evening. You'll remember last week we were talking about Elijah, who has been this prophet that God's raised up in the middle of Israel's decline in the face of this wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel that have led Israel to idolatry. Uh, but in chapter 20, the narrative shifts from what's going on with Elijah, and it shifts back to what's going on with Ahab, who is the king of Israel. And what, what we find has happened during Elijah's time away as he's fled for his life is that the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, uh, this person that Tom Eichem just knew chapter 20 was about off the top of his head, um, 
He has collected for himself a, a group of kings, 32 kings, we're told, in all. And he's decided to invade Samaria. And Samaria is this region that's under the control of Ahab, under the rule of the, the nation of Israel. And his plan is to enslave and conquer most of the people in this city. And I don't know if this is common in the ancient world or not, but what we're told is that Ben-Hadad sends a letter ahead of time to Ahab and goes, hey, just so you know, this is what I'm about to do. Which doesn't seem like the best way to attack uh, a neighboring country is by just letting them know your entire plan. Uh, but Ahab, and this is, is in so many ways just a sign of his wickedness, Ahab just goes, okay, that's fine. He, he kind of just rolls over as the king. It doesn't seem to be concerned about it, doesn't seem to care about the, the fate of the people in Samaria. And it's just another sign of his wickedness and his, his passivity as a ruler. And so then Ben-Hadad sends another letter, and he actually asks for more. He says, not only are we going to enslave all of these people, but we're going to pillage all of the houses too. And for some reason, the, the second letter is what causes Ahab to react. And so he gathers as many of the forces in Israel as he can, and he, he sort of prepares for this battle. And that's where we come to our passage, uh, verse 13 of chapter 20. It says, Behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, the king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, by whom? And the prophet responded, thus says the Lord, by the servant of the governors of the districts. And then he said, who shall begin the battle? And he answered, you. And then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. And they went out at noon when Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths. And he and 32 kings who helped him, the servants of the governors of the districts, went out first. Ben-Hadad sent scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming from Samaria. And he said, if they have come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. And so these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled. And Israel pursued them, but Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. The king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. So here's the scenario. Uh, Israel has amassed its army, and what we kind of find out as you read a little bit later on in the text is that it's about 7,000 people, which certainly sounds like a lot. That's like three or four times the size of our church. But when you read a little bit further, you find out how many people uh, Ben-Hadad of Syria has amassed, and it's like 30 or 40,000 people. Uh, so there is no way in any way, shape, or form that Israel is going to win this, short of an act of God. They are pretty much going to be crushed. And this prophet appears to Ahab. We don't hear anything about him. We don't know his name. Uh, we don't know where they're from or any, anything like that. But he speaks God's word. And, and this just kind of goes to undercut everything Elijah's been saying earlier. Because Elijah keeps saying, it's just me. I'm the only one. There's nobody else. But here's this random prophet who suddenly appears. And he says to him, listen, God is going to give you victory over this army. But here's what you need to do. You need to get 232 of the servants of the leadership in Israel. That may mean nothing to you, but that's the equivalent of putting like people who work in a cubicle on the battlefield. It's like gather the least qualified people that you can think of. Give them swords and send them to march out against this 30,000-person army. And you can have the rest of Israel too, but the people who don't know what they're doing, put them first. So it's this plan that's not by sort of external logistical standards a very good plan. 
And yet this is what the prophet says to do. And so they march. And they end up marching into the camp of the Syrians while all of the kings are getting drunk. Uh, it's, it's almost as if the Syrians are so sure that they're going to win that they're not worried about actually fighting before they throw the victory party. Like they're celebrating the day before because there's no question of who's going to win this battle. And so the word comes to the king of Syria and says, hey, there's people from Samaria marching. What, what do you want us to do? And he gives this command. He says, if they've come for peace, take them alive. If they've come for war, take them alive. That may or may not make sense to you. It shouldn't make sense to you because it's not supposed to make sense. The whole point is that he's so drunk that he can't actually command his army. Like, he's just saying random things that are essentially incoherent, that don't make any sense. And so, this army of essentially office workers from Israel shows up and beats this army from Syria. I don't want to get into the logistics of how this happened necessarily, but I want to call your attention to why this happens. Because I think that gives us sort of a glimpse into the mercy of God. Because the prophet says to Ahab at the very beginning of all this, before he gives him this plan that doesn't seem to make any sense, he says, thus says the Lord, have you seen this great multitude? And he's pointing out the army of Syria. And he says, I give them into your hand on this day that you shall know that I am the Lord. Why does any of this happen? It happens because the God of Israel wants Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, to actually know who the one true God is. And you would think at this point in Ahab's life, after everything he's done, that God would be done with him. I mean, he's rebuilt Jericho. He's allowed the prophets of God to be put to death. Uh, He's confronted Elijah on Mount Carmel. Uh, His wife has issued a death sentence against Elijah, and he hasn't done anything about it. He, by all accounts, is way too far gone for God to really be worried about showing him who he should be worshiping. And yet, in some strange, mysterious way, this victory is an act of mercy on the part of God towards Ahab. It's in some strange way God's plea for him, even after everything that he's done, even after how far he's fallen, it is this plea saying, wake up, turn from sin, see, see who the one true God is, lead my people well. You know, it's, it's so easy for us to, to grow numb to the, the actual depth of God's mercy. Like it, it's so easy for us to look into the lives of our friends or people that we've known, especially people we've known for a long time, and think, man, there is just no way. There, there is no way that this person would ever accept the gospel. This, there's no way that this person would ever uh, sort of turn from who they are and turn towards Christ. Their, their intellectual objections are just too big. They're way too smart to be a Christian. I've probably said that, and, I, and I've certainly have heard people say that. Um, man, they don't think that anything that they're doing in their life is sin. Why, why would they need to re- repent of it? There's just no way for this person to ever come around. And maybe you feel that way about a, a, a dear friend of yours. Maybe it's a, a relative, it's a sibling. This is just not the sort of person who would ever believe the gospel. But that's not how God operates in Scripture. Uh, That's not how he operates with Ahab. Uh, That's not how he operates on the road to Damascus with the Apostle Paul. It's the people who seem that they have gone too far to be redeemed, that God is still in the business of reaching towards. Um, In 1919, there was a young student in England. He was studying medieval literature, and he published a, a series of poems In 1919, he had just survived trench warfare in World War II. He'd seen most of his friends uh, executed, uh, put to death uh, through poison gas attacks, through bombings. 
And he'd survived all this and, and was in many ways so broken by the experience that he had lost the ability to believe that there was a loving God. He wasn't willing to say that there is no God, but he certainly didn't think that anything that Christianity said about God could be true. And so he published this series of poems that were intended to sort of draw attention to all of the horrible things he had seen in the world that had driven him away from this belief in God. The first of those poems in that collection is called Satan Speaks. And, and in this poem, he sort of takes on the persona of Satan, and he just lists all of the things he's seen that, that has destroyed his ability to believe in a God that, that could possibly love the world. Here's a couple of the things that he says in this poem. He says, I am the battle's filth and strain. I am the widow's empty pain. I am the sea that smothers your breath. I am the bomb, the falling death. I am the fact and the crushing reason that thwarts your fantasy's newborn treason. I'm the spider making her net. I am the beast with jaws blood wet. I am the wolf that follows the sun, and I will catch him before the day is done. He walks through all of these things that he's seen, the, the bombs that, that have taken from him his friends, uh, the pain uh, of widows uh, as a result of this war. Uh, he, he talks about the, the crushing reality that even in spite of this war that he's just lived through, uh, there's just the natural evil of the world animals, killing animals, there's so much pain. Well, this individual went on to become a professor at the University of Oxford after he'd finished his studies in literature. Um, and that was when he met uh, another professor of literature at Oxford, a man by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien uh, took a liking to this particular individual and spent a long time talking with him. We're, we're talking years of back and forth and, and carefully listening to uh, all of the pain that had led him away from faith in God. And, and I no doubt a, a number of arguments at the local pub, as British Oxford professors were known to do in these days, and long walks around the grounds of Oxford, just going back and forth about these issues. Until probably a decade after this was written, uh, C.S. Lewis finally said that he became the most reluctant convert in all of England uh, because for years this friend of his had spent time talking with him, uh, answering his questions, reasoning with him, walking with him through all of this pain that he'd wrestled with. But there's nothing in this poem by C.S. Lewis that ever tells you that he would go on to become the most famous Christian author in the 20th century. There, there's nothing in this pain that he expresses that ever says that he would be the sort of person who would write things like the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the Paralandria series, that he would become one of, the, one of the strongest defenders of the Christian faith in his generation. By all accounts, he is too far gone. And yet that's not the way that God works. That, that's not how he works in people's lives. That's not how he works in scripture. That's not how he works in Ahab's life. Even after all of this, he says, I'm going to give you victory in battle. Why? So that you know that I'm the Lord. So that you turn from this. And so ultimately, they achieve victory. Uh, but then, things take a turn. In verse 22, we're told that the prophet, this nameless prophet, came near to the king of Israel and said to him, come and strengthen yourself. Consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Assyria will come up against you. And then we get this insight into what's going on in Syria. We're told that the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are the gods of the hills. And so they were stronger than we. 
But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. Do this. Remove the kings, each from their post, put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you've lost. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot. And then we'll fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice, and he did so. And so in the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. The people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them. And the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. Again, they are outnumbered. And this prophet says to the king Ahab, Thus says the Lord of Israel, because the Syrians have said their Lord is a God of the hills, but not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give this multitude into your hand. So there's this initial victory that takes place. But then there's a subsequent attack from Syria. And and we kind of get an inclination of why Syria attacks Israel again. And it's because one of the leaders of the military comes to the king and says, hey, I think I know why we lost. Uh, that God that they worship, he seems like he's the God of mountains. Like, I mean, have you heard what happened with Moses? He met with God on a mountain, and then this whole thing on Carmel that I heard about, God met with them on a mountain, and we kind of fought them on a mountain. We fought them in the hills. They kind of had a home field advantage. Uh, that's why their God beat our God. But if we fight them in the plains, oh man, we're totally going to win. That's the problem. We were fighting them on their, their God's home turf. And if we bring it to our home turf, we'll be fine. Uh, Now, there's maybe like a modern secular example of this in the area of sports, which I don't presume to understand in the slightest. Uh, But what I am told is that there is such a thing as a home field advantage. Like if, if you are from a particular region, you've trained on a particular field, and you're surrounded by a crowd of people who are mostly in your favor, there's some sort of a competitive edge that comes with that. At least that's what I'm told. If I'm not right, I'm sorry. I thought it was a good illustration. But, but to achieve victory in some sort of a sport thing, away from your home country, uh, when you go somewhere else, it becomes much more challenging. Uh, you're not familiar with the area. The crowd is not in your favor. And, and that's a different sort of victory. This is kind of the way that the ancient world functioned. Many of the people around Israel figured that there was a god for more or less every region. There were territorial deities. There's the God of the mountains, and there's the God in Israel, and he's more powerful in Israel than he would be somewhere else. And, and then there's the God of Syria, and the God of Syria is more powerful in Syria, and on and on it goes. And so here's their logic is, if we fight them on the plains, their mountain God's not going to be able to help them. We'll, we'll have the home field advantage. Now, that sounds strange to us, because we think to ourselves, if God is God, he's God everywhere. Right? He's not just the God of a mountain or, or of a field. I, and that's certainly true, but, but I want to propose this. We functionally think like the Syrians more often than not. Even if like on a test, if you were asked to write a theology paper, you would say uh, with the psalmist what Beth read for us in worship, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Functionally, we don't act that way. Like, like how many times... Have, have we been having conversations, or maybe you're talking to somebody here at the church, and maybe you say something that's like a little bit off, off of center in terms of its truthfulness, or it's, it's a little bit um, unkind, and then you catch yourself and you go, oh, it's church, I shouldn't say that here. And maybe you're like half joking when you say that, but it sort of betrays this underlying theological problem that we think that somehow Jesus is more Lord here than he is anywhere else. And so we have to be more Christian when we're here than we are anywhere else. Can I tell you, that's not any different than the way that the Syrians are thinking. 
their God is more God in the mountains, but he's less God in the plains. And we functionally operate like this all the time. Right? Like Jesus is Lord maybe of my Sunday morning, but he's certainly not Lord of my work week. There's nothing in the way that I interact with people in work that would say that Jesus is Lord. But man, I am Mr. or Mrs. Pius when it comes to Sunday mornings. Or we, we say things like, you know, Jesus may be Lord of my Bible study, but he's not Lord of the way that I use my mind intellectually during the week at school. I mean, he's Lord of the sort of knowledge I accumulate that's theological, but when it comes to things like biology and science and history and math, what does Jesus have to do with any of that? He's Lord of the mountains, but not Lord of the plains. And we don't say this, but this is how we live. We are prone to this. And I I think the, the problem can even be more internal than that. Because I can think of so many times in my life where I'm able to, and maybe it's just me, maybe I'm the only person who's sinful in this room, but, but I can bracket my emotions and I can relegate Christ's lordship to certain ones. Jesus is absolutely Lord when life is good. Jesus is not Lord when life is bad. Or at least I'm not willing to acknowledge that. Again, on my mountains, Jesus is Lord, hallelujah. But in those valleys, I functionally live like he's not. Can he be Lord, not just of your joy, but can he be Lord over your sorrow as well? The Syrians are convinced that the God of Israel is regional. But the testimony of Scripture is that the scope of God's authority is universal. And that doesn't just cross geographical barriers. That crosses the barriers of emotion even in the human heart. And so God says this to the king of Israel through the mouth of the prophet. Because they have said the Lord is the God of the hills, but he's not the God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand. And you'll know that I'm the Lord. Again, all of this is happening so that you'll know, so that you'll turn, so that you'll, you'll walk in repentance. We're told that they encamped opposite of one another for seven days and on the seventh day the battle was joined the people of Israel struck down the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day and the rest fled into the city of Aphek and the wall fell upon 27,000 and this is where you get the number and how outnumbered Israel is 7,000 to 120 or 30,000 here's uh, the reality Ahab in spite of everything he's done, in spite of all of his wickedness, in chapter 20 of 1 Kings, he, he learns two things. One, he learns the relentless depths of God's mercy. And two, he learns the utter expanse of God's rule. That God, even after everything that Ahab done, has done, is still pursuing him. And two, even in spite of all that Ahab thinks, God is Lord over a greater expanse even still. The great Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper has this famous quote that he's come to be known for. He says, there's not a square inch in all of creation over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. I mentioned that the challenge for us when we come to passages like this in the Old Testament is seeing how it has anything to do with Jesus. 
Now, this all sounds good and fine, but where does it bring us to the gospel? And, and I would say simply this, the same God who seeks Ahab out in mercy in spite of his rebellion is the God who in the person of Jesus Christ meets with the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus in spite of his rebellion. Uh, the, the same God who says again to Ahab, I am God of the mountains and the valleys, says in the risen Christ, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The God who is merciful here in 1 Kings remains merciful even now to the uttermost. So can I plead with you to to come before him now as we come to the Lord's table uh, in repentance, in in confidence, uh, knowing uh, that he is Lord both of this table and of the world and that he's merciful and kind and cares for you. Let me pray and we'll move into a time of communion. Uh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather uh, by the work of Jesus. Uh, You have reached out to us in Christ and shown mercy even when we didn't deserve it. And we see as the gospel goes to the world, Uh, be it through uh, teams that we as a church send to Honduras or Africa or teams that we here at College and Careers send to Scotland, we see that you are Lord not just of one place or one people, but all places and all peoples. And you invite every tribe and tongue and nation to this table that we come now to, uh, the table of Christ Jesus, the symbol of your mercy for us. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, bring us to repentance, strengthen us, encourage us now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.